So I wanted to just start by uh, just saying happy birthday, Buddha. I dressed up today for the Buddha's birthday. (laughs) Boy, thoughts are a trip, aren't they? The thinking mind. It's kind of my topic tonight. Loosely based on the third foundation. Sometimes I just wonder, today actually a few times, like what's going on here? Like what is going on in my mind, in the world, in that bird's mind? Like what is going on here? Have you figured it out yet? Seeing the movie, the magic show of kind of mental and emotional content arising and passing away. It's a trip. The Buddha talked about the development of mindfulness. Saying, you know, it's better to have lived a single day seeing the rapid arising and passing away of phenomena than to live a hundred years not seeing. I don't know if I've made it a whole day. But what I have seen, I'm, I could agree. It's a, That's a validated faith for me. In that uh, so much can be seen. When we go to a place like this. You know, we're paying attention, we're giving attention, we're focusing our mind, our heart. Does it need to be closer? What do you think, Nancy? Can you hear me? All right. Check, check. The better. Okay. The one one thing about wearing this is that I usually like to project my voice, and I have to be really mindful of my voice. It's good, I guess. It's a good thing. So how's that going, this seeing the rapid arising and passing away of all phenomena? How's that going? (laughs) You know, there's several things happening right now and throughout the day from moment to moment. I remember being on a longer retreat and it was right before an interview or a practice discussion. I just had this like it all kind of came together I guess people called it insight it's called it insight I guess I don't know I figured something out maybe and I walked in and Carol Wilson looked at me and I have a soft spot in my heart for her I like, like her a lot and uh, she said what's happening and I said well you know there's a lot happening. <laughs> she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, there, there's what's happening. There's what's actually happening. Then there's what's happening about what's happening. Then there's what's not actually happening. 
And then there's what's happening about what's not actually happening. You know, I was like a month into a retreat. She was like, hmm. (laughs) But it was really helpful for me to see it that way. And I do see it that way. That there is what's happening. And that's what we're talking about. So these four foundations of mindfulness are so much about. There's what's happening. So let's break that down. There's sense contact. There's this awareness of body and breath. One we can remember. There's this feeling tone. Which leads to perception. Which leads to mental fabrication. That's what's happening. That's really all that's happening. Then there's what's happening about what's happening, right? All the thoughts, the emotions, the arising uh, based on present experience, based on what's happening. So then there's what's not actually happening, which is the like what we call mental proliferation, right? You know, the stories, the hurts and mistreatments, the fantasies, you know, sometimes called proliferation of thought or papancha. One of my favorite words, papancha. And then there's what's happening about what's not actually happening. Which is all of the feelings, the emotions, the kind of uh, thoughts that we grasp onto. It's helpful to be able to see this. So when Carol asked me that, and I was like, there's a lot going on. It was really helpful. The what's happening about what's not actually happening when clung to is suffering. So this third foundation, you know, when we first come to practice, I don't know about you, but I had lots of thoughts and I wanted to entertain them all, figure them all out. It was like somehow important. And the Buddha, so brilliant. That guy was pretty smart. But he was like, no, 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 no. First focus on the breath. Then the breath in the body. <laughs> then maybe contemplate death for a little bit. You know? Then let's look at feeling tone. So let's quiet the mind. Let's look at feeling tone. Then after you've established in these areas, then let's take a look at thought. Pretty smart. Props to the Buddha. I was on another retreat, probably my first five-day retreat. I don't even know how many, long time ago now. And um, it was about tonight. It was about third day, fourth day. I had been struggling with my mind, with all my thoughts, all my problems, all of everything. The teacher came out, sat down. The lights were low. It was like really kind of very auspicious or something. And he said, have you figured it out yet? And I was like, absolutely not. (laughs) We're not our thoughts. We're not our feelings. 
and it hit me. And it's still, it's, it's a, still for me, it's a very powerful moment of clarity. We're not our thoughts. We're not our emotions. This practice has really helped me to see that. Not that they're not important. Not that they're not useful. But that's not all that is here. Yet we get so ruled by them. Some words from the Buddha. The mind, hard to control, flighty, alighting where it wishes, one does well to tame. The disciplined mind brings happiness. The mind, hard to see, subtle, alighting where it wishes, the sage protects. The watched mind (coughs) brings happiness. This is the Buddha saying, our minds are out of control. One does well to tame. Mary Grace uh, referred to this maybe last night or yesterday or something about mind training. That's exactly what we're doing here. We're training our mind. How's that going? Kind of like herding cats a little bit, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, this mind is out of control and sometimes highly inappropriate. Huh? I don't know about yours, maybe it's just me. So in Vipassana, you know, what we're trying to do, we're not trying to stop our minds from thinking, nor are we engaging it with, with it as an enemy. And I, I didn't really understand that for a while. I thought thinking was bad and we're not supposed, we're supposed to be clear of thoughts. No thoughts. I don't know. I, I got that early on. It's a misconception. It's a misunderstanding. But instead befriending the thoughts, the mind thinks. It's what it does. Tongue salivates. Pancreas secretes insulin. The mind thinks. It's helpful to see it that way. So instead of you know engaging with an enemy, we're trying to befriend our thoughts and overcome our preoccupation with them. That's important to me. We are addicted to thinking. Definitely in our society, I believe we're addicted to thinking. We have thoughts. Uh, we have heads on top of our heads. We think about thinking. We think about thinking about thinking. First time I ever uh, met Gil Fronsdale, he said that to he said that to this group at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. He was like, "We have heads on top of our heads in this culture," and he did this like, and I and I envisioned like this, you know, kind of uh, Tibetan. You know, heads on top of heads on top of heads that they see in some of the iconography. And it made it made a lot of sense to me, and I think it's very true. So mindfulness is the clear, silent awareness that we are thinking. Yet not getting lost in it. Or letting it rule us. Meditation is a fierce practice in the way that it reveals the stark reality of our everyday mind. This practice, when we're on retreat, it's like, oh yeah, no, this happens all day, every day. 
It's just we're slowing down enough. We can actually see it and maybe do something about it. Or have at least the awareness that it's happening. Our internal life, we're constantly preoccupied with the voices of, I like this, I don't like that, she hurt me. How can I get that? More of this, no more of that. Just back and forth, back and forth. It's exhausting. Like today, you know, this experimentation this morning of, you know, let's just notice pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. See how that goes. A lot, huh? This is all an attempt you know, to find pleasure and comfort. You know, and possibly avoid discomfort or unpleasant thoughts, emotions, experiences. So no one's to blame here. You're not doing anything wrong. The four foundations take this untrained, everyday mind as a natural starting point. And gives us a clear and systematic way of developing this awareness of this process. So mindful awareness takes this unexamined mind and opens it up. By not trying to change anything. But by observing the mind. Emotions. The body. Just as they are. That's what we're doing. Right? Have you had a sense of that? Hopefully. In my experience, there's some peace and ease there when we can get to that place of, oh, it's like this. Seeing pleasant, seeing unpleasant, seeing thoughts. Oh, they're just thoughts. So often people misunderstand this third foundation of mindfulness and they and they ask me, you know, are we trying to stop our thinking? Or are we just ignoring our thoughts? And so this is where the first foundation, I love the first foundation, is like, yeah, actually. De-emphasize your thinking. Aim the attention. Aim the awareness. Breath, body. Even contemplate death. Watch a corpse decompose. I like it. So that's a way of like breaking our addiction. You know, just say no. You know, as uh, Mary Grace said on the first night, not now. (laughs) Not never. Just not now. It's one of my favorite teachings. So once we've established, you know, as as we have, well, hopefully, some uh, calmness, some steadiness of mind. They even say in some other literature of the text, it's refining the mind. We're refining the mind. Defragging the computer. You know, so it's more efficient. Doesn't mean that we're just delete all the programs. Just defrag. Can be helpful. 
So then, checking in with repetitive thoughts. We're not saying ignore them. At first, yeah, yeah, because so many of them are just filler. Or they're just, it's just not uh, as important as you think. Just blips of energy, I heard Jack Kornfield say. Just imagine thoughts as blips of energy arising from nowhere and then going to where? Who knows? Why does it matter? Just stay here. So helpful. But then we have these repetitive thoughts. You start to notice them. Maybe you've noticed them. We're not saying ignore them. What we are saying is look beneath them. We run with these stories actually access, as Bob said the other night, storehouse of feelings and emotions and unresolved situations. Why do they continue? Why do these stories replay? Is a good question. Not that they are replaying. We know that. Why? This is a place of exploration. What's underneath? What can I, what can be felt here? Thoughts have may thoughts may or often have an emotional content, an emotional undercurrent. But if we're so busy in the thinking, we're not actually accessing the freedom that comes from allowing emotions to come. Emotions to play themselves out. So important. But this is this isn't a cognitive process. You know, we're not trying to figure it out. It's not a mental like if I can just think it through enough, like the Rubik's cube of my mind. Or a Sudoku or something. It's a little more updated, maybe Sudoku. (laughs) It's not like that. Instead, it's this present time awareness. It's like this. Pleasant, unpleasant, neither. This is the way I understand the third foundation. You know, Sylvia Bornstein calls this uh, the moral inventory machine of the mind. The moral inventory machine of the mind. In other words, all that stuff you tried to avoid, you didn't want to face, you, you know, tucked into the, the dark corner of your mind, it's still there. And oftentimes, you know, like... Uh, Mary Grace said the other day, you thought you were coming to the happy, peaceful IRC, but really you came to the garbage dump. And then Technon Han has a saying of, you know, the garbage dump, the garbage of your heart and mind can actually be the fertilizer to grow flowers. But you have to do that transformation. And it ain't easy. I know. I could barely sit for 20 minutes when I first started without wanting to get up and run out of the room. Because you all 
had to hear the insanity that was going on inside my mind. That has changed. That is no longer the case. It's taken a while. Not that there's not insanity, it's just I could sit for longer with it. <laughs> so we call these, you know, some of these repetitive thoughts, I like to call them habits of mind. You know, our habits color our view of the world. We then react out of our view or perception. We can call them, you know, trains of thought. There's a helpful way to kind of work with them, and I've had some experience of this trains of thought. So maybe just talk about an experience that I had on retreat um, a while ago, where it was I was working, you know, some time had gone by, settling the mind, refining the attention. Body awareness, breath awareness, helpful, really helpful. And you know, like this morning, uh, and we'll talk about tomorrow too, just come right back to that. Get lost or whatever, just, it's your anchor. So I started to see these familiar patterns over several retreats actually. Uh, And then talking with a teacher I began to explore them. And seeing, actually kind of in my mind, like when I was uh, resting, I would be on the platform. I actually envision uh, Grand Central Station, actually, because you have to go down through these little tunnels, and then each train kind of takes off in a different direction. And uh, so I'd get on a train, and it was like the train of teacher Jason. And I would just get lost on this train, like, no conductor, I don't know who's driving this thing. And it would just be this, like, this, the, the, the train of self, Jason self, teacher self, you know, or, uh, Jason, the, the, it would be like train number nine would be like, uh, Jason, the, you know, therapist Jason or the son Jason or the you know all of the different selves I began to see them there we go so we can see them as trains of thought our feelings influence our perception of how we see things and then we create a belief kind of based on that feeling. So we begin to see these repetitive thoughts and oftentimes we're unconsciously just kind of reacting. <clears throat> Trains of thought. So this is, you know, it's a strategy. It's all part of a strategy to survive and be safe, happy, and healthy in the world. Again, not to blame. For me, you know, I had to... I had to have a strategy. I had to have a strategy to survive. 
And for a time, you know, it was useful. But it's outserved its usefulness. Maybe you found that to be true. You know, these strategies that we get kind of locked into, they're just not useful anymore. And then putting them down is terrifying, though, because I'm so used to it. There's some talk about that around our suffering, too. We kind of lock into our suffering, hold on to our suffering, get comfortable around our suffering. I heard Gil say one time, we need to build an intolerance to our suffering, to do something about it, let it go. I like that idea. Because if we don't, what happens? We, we stay trapped in what's familiar, what's predictable, what's safe, and what's painful. <clears throat> familiar, predictable, safe, and painful. There's some words by Mahagosananda. One of my, uh, never met him, but I would have liked to. He's kind of like the Gandhi of Cambodia. He has this to say. The thought manifests as word. The word manifests as deed. The deed develops into habit. Habit hardens into character. Character gives birth to destiny. So watch your thoughts with care and let it spring from love born out of respect for all being. So we have a duty here. Because if the mind is flighty and lighting where it wishes, then we can watch our thoughts. We don't have to get lost in them. We don't have to believe them, but we can watch them. Whereas like kind of a guard at the gate. Okay, you're okay. You can come in. No, no, no. But you're okay. You're okay. You can come in. I'm sorry, but you need to go get your ID checked. (laughs) You know? It can be helpful. Discernment. This practice helps us to see these patterns and in time learn new ways to respond rather than react to a situation or to an experience. One of my favorite poems, Bob taught me this, it's by Kabir. O mind you carry on your back, your actions are like a heavy sack. No wonder that your shoulders ache Another strains enough to break your neck. So drop that stupid load. This is the last stop on the road where you can find rest. Stay. Be love's guest. You know, because we carry all these experiences, these thoughts. Just carry them with us from childhood, right? Eight years old. You know, the chainsaw, the... So I, this is kind of the way the, my mind works. Chainsaw. Pleasant. Mm-hmm. No, unpleasant. I would watch when it would, he would turn it off. He was very nice. He would turn it off in between cutting. <laughs> so he'd cut. Unpleasant, unpleasant. Hear the tree crack. Then he'd turn it off. Pleasant. 
They turn on unpleasant, unpleasant. And then the mind would go, chainsaw. Oh, remember? When I was like eight years old, I used to help this guy down the street and I got in this whole story about when I was like first learned how to use a chainsaw. I was eight years old. And I was right there, eight years old, at the side of this river, you know, every time the chainsaw would come on, and then I just recognized, oh, thinking, thinking. Past. And then back to the breath. And you know, the beautiful thing about it, especially even as I just am talking about it right now, I didn't have any like, you're totally blowing this. It didn't come into my mind, and for years it did. It was like, oh, the mind. Oh, the mind. Does whatever the hell it wants, still. (laughs) But when we see it, when we can recognize it, and we can have that moment of like, oh, just some compassion, some forgiveness. To me, that's freedom. Mindfulness brings us the freedom of choice. Mindfulness brings us the freedom of choice. If we can stop reacting out of anger or fear and begin to bring awareness to what is happening within us and around us at any given time, then we can create new habits of mind that lead towards peace, ease, and happiness. Remember the first time I heard those words, peace, ease, and happiness? I was like, yeah, right. (laughs) This mind? Maybe for you guys. You know, I was reluctant. Luckily, I had had a little bit of meditation practice without understanding anything about Buddhism. No one said anything to me about Buddhism for a long time. It was just sit, watch the mind. It was really helpful for me. But I'm more inclined towards peace, ease, and happiness these days. Seeing uh, habits of mind. And then actually wanting, because of enough, enough time seeing them, oh yeah, it's so not useful anymore, but it still happens. And then a little bit of compassion, a little bit more effort. Often thoughts are based on this rehashing or rehearsing worry or regret, pleasure, pleasure seeking through fantasy or memory, avoidance of physical pain or emotional anguish. That's pretty much what happens. So learning to let go of thoughts and our reactive habits. It's a practice of non-grasping. So it comes up. We see it. If we can have that moment of clarity. Even if we're lost on the train halfway to Poughkeepsie. And get off. Come on back. Right on the platform. Breathing in. Know that I'm breathing in. Breathing out. Know that I'm breathing out. Again and again. Those of you who have heard me lead meditation know that I say that a lot. 
again and again, recognizing when the attention wanders off. And right there, a little sense of loving kindness, compassion, out of the mind. And then coming back again and again. So if we're not our thoughts, then what are we? If we're not our thoughts, what are they? Zen master Kosho Yuchiyami in his book, Opening the Hand of Thought, described them like this. It's one of my favorite descriptions. You might try looking at all the stuff that comes up in your head as just a secretion. (laughs) all our thoughts and feelings are a kind of secretion it is important for us to see this clearly I've always got things coming up in my head but if I tried to act on everything that came up it would just wear me out thoughts are just secretions just blips of energy Maybe some energy we need to look at. But a large percentage of it we can just watch. Not avoid. Not get lost in. Just experience. Clouds are beautiful. I like to watch them pass. So this is consistent with the teachings of the Buddha regarding the aggregates. All mental formations. Jill talked about the aggregates last night and gave the gave you the list. So I'm not going to get into the list. But just to say this, all mental formations, wholesome and unwholesome, are dependent upon perception, which includes memory, and can lead to grasping or aversion, which results in dukkha. So this grasping or aversion. So if we can just see, oh, mental formation. Oh, pleasant, unpleasant. And that there was another, besides wholesome and unwholesome, um, there was this way, I heard it described once, as entangling or liberating. So we can see the thoughts that come up in our mind. If we can you know, pause enough, and we can get a little bit of a, a distance from you can see, oh, is this entangling? Okay, if I chase this rabbit down this hole, is it going to entangle me more? Or is it actually leading to freedom? This is where the discernment comes from. It takes practice, so you know. So when we hear something, you know, ear, object, like this chainsaw, memory comes into play, and along with them our history or our hurts and mistreatments, even advertising slogans sometimes just pop into the mind. Something, what's happening? Something happens, and then an advertising or a movie line or a song, and then loop, loop, loop. Maybe that's one where you can just go, ah, just thinking and let it go. This happens to me all day long. 
Sometimes I get a little bit of Tourette's, actually, and I like will say the same thing over and over again. It's kind of like it happens in my mind. I just vocalize it. It's not helpful to do here. But it does indeed happen. So in, in meditation, you know, the replaying of these you know, sights, sounds, memories, songs, rewinding, associate, and associate to our experience in the present moment. But we don't have to give it a whole lot of attention. Usually this happens so fast that the, I heard the Dalai Lama say once, uh, uh, thoughts are faster than the speed of light. Like he you know, probably had some scientists clocking thoughts or something because <laughs> he's got juice like that. You know? <laughs> I heard um, Jack Hornfield on a retreat that I was at once say, the top ten tunes of the mind. We start to see these repetitive patterns as the top ten tunes. You know? The I am's, the selfing that takes place. It could be like a movie that the mind creates, directs, and we star in and are the critic of. Right? <laughs> Does that ever happen to you? <laughs> No, that comes out in dreams even. And so, it was in a, uh, the Del Mar movie theater and uh, watching a movie. This was a helpful moment for me, not on retreat, just li- you know, watching a movie and having all, but aware of all these feelings that were coming up as I'm watching the movie. I'm like, oh, wow, oh, that, oh. And I'm feeling this, like, tightness as a, there's a fight scene. And, and then I'm, like, really engaged in this movie. And then I catch a glimpse of the particles of dust. And I look and I see that there's a beam of light projecting onto the screen this story. And I'm having all these internal, you know, thoughts and reactions to. And I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) It's kind of like, just like meditation, you know? Because that is what's happening, right? And it's what's not actually happening that is happening. Because the, you know, flick the switch, the movie goes off, but yet there's still all this stuff going on. Just secretions. <laughs> Can be helpful to see it that way. So there's another aspect that I want to focus on for the rest of this time. It's another way that I see that the mind plays tricks on us. It's called judgment. You guys know about that? The judging mind. The Buddha called it mana. In Pali, the word mana means comparing or weighing. It was helpful for me to begin to see this. Who hasn't been hurt by judgments? Raise your hand. Okay. Talking to the right room. 
who hasn't judged. We have a judge. Some of us have one that's working overtime. (laughs) The judging mind is the old story. Voices of not good enough. This is in all of us. Not just you. Not just me. It's in every one of us. How much the judge is on vacation or, you know, bringing down the gavelin. That was called gavelin. Is that the gavel? Whatever. Are you judging me for that? (laughs) We judge the judging mind. We judge when we're judging. We judge ourselves for judging. Oh, I was just being so judgmental. The way that person makes that tea. Man, I can't believe that they didn't, you know, compost that tea bag. And then, oh man, I'm a horrible yogi. I'll just go take that, the the tea bag out. Which is not fine. But... But we just do that, right? And then so here we are in this laboratory looking at judgment all day long. Pleasant and unpleasant. <laughs> Neutral. Hmm. Our comparing mind is usually attached to our defense of our lovability, our competence, or our intelligence. This is what I found. What I've seen, what I've read. Lovability, competence, or intelligence. So if we are defensive and you know caught in judgment, we continue our cycle of creating suffering. I think I speak for everyone else here, the teachers that is. What we're saying is that you are lovable, that you're intelligent. And that you're worthy. That's what we're saying. So judgment versus discernment. And it's important to be able to discern, to compare, to see. Without that layer of kind of uh, good, bad. So if we can begin to see these experiences as pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, as kind of, you know, Jill was instructing and we're working with today, this helps us build equanimity, balance in the mind, without that layer of harshness. I was talking with someone today, and uh, she said, but, you know, we were just conditioned that way. Yes, we were conditioned that way. Causes and conditions. And the Buddha pointed to, even back in his time, we are conditioned, the mind is conditioned to compare. And if we can be able to step back and use discernment versus judgment, so that's just without the harshness of it. Like just seeing, you know, he's taller than me. She's younger than me, whatever. Just like that kind of awareness. 
we tell ourselves, you know, if I only had whatever, the new iPod, the new iPhone, a better job, more money, a different partner, a different family, more of this, less of that, then I'd be happy. This is craving. This is suffering. We compare our insides to others' outsides. If I had this or that, then I wouldn't feel this way or that way. Some people call that the hungry ghosts. Never able to be fed. Never able to be satisfied. You guys heard of the hungry ghosts? In uh, kind of Vajrayana, Tibetan practice, at this, the, I saw this tonka once with all of these beings, kind of ghostly beings, kind of caspers with big fat bellies that are red, and then tiny little throats that are red and irritated, and then uh, uh, tiny little pinhole mouths, all sitting around a huge feast. So they're uh, they're starving, hungry, but yet can't satiate their appetite because it's so painful and they can't get enough. This is this, if only I had grasping, if only I had craving, then I'd be happy. I heard Ajahn Amaro uh, talk about that as the cycle of addiction. He said, hungry ghost, cycle of addiction. Same thing. The constant dissatisfaction with the way things are. Our minds have been conditioned to compare. However, every time we do this comparing, comparing ourselves to others, you know, we're creating a sense of self that is fixed. This I am. We are locking ourselves into beliefs of who we are. This is where this kind of anatta teaching comes from. No fixed and permanent anything. Changing all the time. Like I was saying earlier about, you know, I had this belief, like when I first started meditating... I had all these kind of, wow, this will never happen for me. And now I'm like sitting up on this, like, how did this happen? I'm like a different person. In Thai, they say, sabai, sabai. Same, same, but different. Same, same, but different. With all kinds of extra microbes or whatnot. When we recognize this, uh, this kind of always looking for something outside, this, this when we recognize this this dissatisfaction, and when, when we recognize this kind of creation of self as a way to, uh, I don't know, like feel whole or I don't exactly know why. I mean, it's considered the delusion. It's also fear based. What would happen if we didn't exist? There was no fixed and permanent me. Then what? 
course, as you know, Bob mentioned the other day, then there's the other side. I just don't want to exist. That's the, uh, I want to be somebody or feel nothing. I was much more into the feel nothing. For a while, it's changed. So, you know, we can recognize that this is happening. Whether it's judgment, or this repetitive thought pattern, or this negative self-talk, or this grasping, wanting things to be other than they are. This is a perfect time for compassion. One of my teachers, Noah Levine, said uh, to me once, to a group, but I was there. (laughs) He said... um, You know, compassion is the appropriate response to suffering all the time. There's never a time when compassion isn't the appropriate response to suffering. Whether it's my suffering, your suffering, world suffering. Made a lot of sense to me. So in that moment where we're afflicted with our own, you know, judgments and judging the judgment. Hmm. I have this like little, I don't know what it is. It's some little, little voice that says, oh, mind. It's in a very soft way. Oh, that's the mind. That's doing its thing. And then back to the breath, back to the body. Helpful. So when this compulsive thinking takes place, because it does, you know, compulsive thinking happens, we can focus on the body, focus on the sensation. Does it feel in the body? That's why I'm so grateful for the first foundation of mindfulness. And actually in my uh, training with Bob, he's and really focus even more and more into the first foundation of mindfulness. I appreciate that. It's pretty helpful. Because I wanted to figure out all my thoughts too. I wanted to avoid them for a while, but then I wanted to sort of figure them out. And you know, this is the thing about the third foundation of mindfulness. There's a time and a place. And learning discernment. The way This is the way it goes for me. Maybe this will be helpful for you. I'm sitting, breathing, mind, you know, thoughts come. And I'm like, not now, not now, not now, not now. Oh, maybe. Give it a little bit of a look with my mind. Just turn. And I see, I, 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 I check in. Is there emotional undercurrent? Or is it repetitive? Is it a theme that keeps coming back? You know, if it's some story like the chainsaw thing, you know, recognize, oh, just come right back. The mind just went wherever the heck it went. So this is, you know, a way to kind of begin to discern. Liberating. Entangling. I think repetitive themes over time. Now, I followed the breath and body awareness for five years before I even ever looked at a thought. With an inquiry, with an, with kind of an inquiry, mainly because I just didn't know how to do it skillfully. 
than have a, enough practice. You know, each person's different. It's helpful to have a teacher. There's a quote from Ajahn Moon. Ajahn Moon was thought to be enlightened when Arahant was Ajahn Chah's teacher. Ajahn Chah is the kind of Western Thai forest tradition kind of lineage holder, uh, well, teacher, master, and then uh, Jack Cornfield and Ajahn Sumedho and Ajahn Amaro and kind of a lot of the teachers in the Thai forest were students of uh, Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Mun was his teacher. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to abandon the body. Examine its nature. See the elements that comprise it. See the impermanence, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. When it's true, the heart sees nature fully, lucidly. The wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of mind can shine, timeless and delivered. Ajahn Moon. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to abandon the body. I think that's a lifetime practice. So tomorrow I'll give kind of a practice. Uh, we'll, we'll work with that a little bit. This kind of how to work with thoughts. and It's a way I think is helpful. But here's just a couple things to kind of end on. It's not your thought. It's just thought. Try that on. There's no I in thought just thought arising out of nowhere going who knows it's not your emotion just emotion who doesn't have emotion well maybe Spock but no even Spock (laughs) has emotion this is buried thoughts Emotions, You know, if you're ever really just preoccupied with them, just imagine that they're coming from the person behind you. (laughs) Because really, it's very impersonal. (laughs) We're locked in some regret. Oh, it's just coming from the person behind you. Let it go. Let it pass through. The Buddha on cultivating the mind. Develop a mind that is vast like space, where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. Rest in a mind that is vast like the sky. 
Develop a mind that is vast like space, where experience, both pleasant and unpleasant, can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. Rest in a mind that is vast like the sky. I like that one. Just take a moment. Just hear the bell. (coughs) Know the experience of breathing. Happy birthday, Buddha.